We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. A few weeks ago, our family took a vacation to upstate New York, to Ithaca and the Finger Lakes. Um, We hiked, went swimming, and visited the Corning Museum of Glass, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend to other people who are going on vacation with a 17-month-old toddler who loves to touch things. Um, The trip was a mix of fun and a little bit of stress uh, with a toddler at a a, a glass museum. So on our last day, I was very much looking forward to returning to Cayuga Lake for a relaxing swim before we got in the car for our eight-hour drive back to Boston. I was a little bit disappointed, though, when we got to the lake and saw that the beach was swarming with summer camp kids. It wasn't too much of a problem, though. Our family of three doesn't take up a lot of space. So we put on our swimming suits, piled our things onto our beach blanket, and headed down to the beach. As we were going down, we heard the lifeguard say several times, 15 minute buddy check, everybody check in with your buddy. Ah, the fun of summer camp. (laughs) As we got down actually into the water, we had waded into our ankles and we heard the lifeguard come over the loudspeaker again, this time saying, everybody out, everybody out of the water. Sophie and I looked at each other, looked at the kids who were doing that slow motion run through the waves up onto the beach And I thought, this can't mean everybody. This is just for the kids, right? But as I looked, and the lifeguard kept saying the same thing again, everybody out, it looked like all the kids and all the adults were indeed getting out. I started to get frustrated. Now, I grew up in rural northern California in a place where there are more cows than people and more pine trees than cows. So I spent my summers swimming in lakes and rivers in the mountains. And in my town of 300, we had to drive 10 miles down the freeway freeway before you could even find a lifeguard at a city pool. There certainly weren't any lifeguards in the rivers and lakes that we would swim in. It was literally the wild west of swimming. So I felt a bit miffed at the idea that the lifeguard, somebody who was in college, probably a teenager, could tell me an adult that I needed to get out of the water on a perfectly clear day with the placid placid water, and I had paid $9 to get into the park. The injustice. What kind of system is this? Where is the justice? Well, it turns out I may not actually be the perfect judge of what is just and right. Surprise. The lifeguard actually had some good reasons for asking everybody to get out of the water. She was exercising her authority for the good of the people, and I didn't actually know what was going on. Our psalm for today has something to say about good government established for the, for the flourishing of the people. But it's, more, it's about more than just having good intentions. Because as we know, there have been many many governments that have claimed to be established for the good of the people that have done just the opposite. In our psalm, we're going to look at God's vision for good government, God's vision for a good king. 
So as Tim said, uh, we're looking at Psalm 72, and in your Bibles, that is page 485, if you're using the Bible in front of you. Psalm 72. <clears throat> in, uh, so Psalm 72, along with Psalms 2 and 8, is a royal psalm. It's both a prayer and a prophecy for the king and for a good king. As you can see at the top, it says, of Solomon. So it could mean that this was written by King Solomon. Some, some scholars think it was written for King Solomon. Uh, John Calvin thought it was likely a prayer that King David wrote for his son, King Solomon, and then that Solomon turned into a poem for future kings to, to, uh, to, for it to be prayed for future kings as well. So he gets it kind of both ways. You can hear the prayer aspect clearly in the first two passages, or the first two verses. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. As for the prophecy aspect, every time you hear may he throughout this psalm, it could be translated as he will instead. The Hebrew verbs could go either way, and if you read different translations, you'll find that they actually translate it different ways. So verse 2 could be read, He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. So the psalm is a prayer for the good rule of God's people. And, spoiler alert, it's also a prophecy about Jesus. He is the only ruler who can and will fulfill this psalm. Jesus is the good king who will judge with righteousness and justice for the flourishing of the people across the earth. So we're going to look at God's vision for a good king by following three aspects of, of the psalm. First, God's vision is that a good king's rule be based on God's justice and righteousness. Second, a good king's rule should be for and should bring about the flourishing of the people. And uh, lastly, in the psalm, we see that God's vision is that this good kingdom should extend across the earth and throughout all of time. So God's good vision for a good king is one whose judgments are based on God's justice and righteousness, one, whose rule, one who rules for the flourishing of the people, and one whose kingdom extends across the earth. Now, I'm going to use the language of king and he, as the psalm does, but the psalm certainly applies to both men and women, uh, be they kings, queens, presidents, mayors, or as I hope we'll see, just regular people on the street like you and me, who as image bearers of God are rulers as well. So we'll start with the foundation. God's design for good kingship is that the kingdom is, and kingdom is that the ruling authority be based on God's righteousness and justice that they be an extension of his own rule, of God's own rule. So we see this right off the bat, uh, right off the bat in the prayer part of Psalm 72, verse 1. But this isn't new to Psalm 72. This has been God's design for his people from the beginning. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, several hundred years before Israel even had a king, God communicates that the eventual king should make the study of God's law which is so God's exposition of his justice and righteousness, that the king should make the study of the law part of his daily routine. I'm going to read uh, part of Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14 here. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
and skipping down to verse 18. The king shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king described here and in Psalm 72 is a Psalm 1 kind of person, the kind whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. It sinks in and it changes the way that the king sees things, especially the way that the king sees justice. It changes the way that he sees it so that he sees justice the way that God does. Justice and righteousness, which you can think of as right thinking, feeling, and action, they don't actually come naturally to us. In our fallen state, every one of our thoughts, feelings, and actions has a taint of evil that twists it and perverts it to injustice, no matter how hard we try. That's why there are no governments that have perfect laws and why all judgments in any kind of civil or criminal court is always imperfect because they're made by twisted, short-sighted people like you and like me. This was true for King Solomon. He started out right. His inaugural prayer in 1 Kings 3 echoes the prayer that we've read for him in Psalm 72. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. And God answered that prayer and gave him wisdom. But if you know the story of Solomon, you know that because of the twisting effect of sin, he slowly abandoned the wisdom of God and started to rule with the wisdom of Solomon instead. He lost sight of God's justice and righteousness. We'll see more of that in a minute. In Psalm 72, we read, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Notice that it's not the people and the poor, it's your people and your poor. So this prayer, being spoken to God, recognizes that the people in question aren't the king's people. They're not even their own people. They are God's people. The king is a ruler only under God. All rulers are just delegates. When I was in college, I took a one-off job with some friends as a chauffeur to a wedding at a mansion on a hill outside of LA. Now, I'm a fine driver, but it's one thing to be a fine driver in your own car, driving just yourself. I was driving quite a fancy car that didn't belong to me, taking wedding guests up a steep hill. When I picked up the guests, I had to park at the bottom of the hill between two also pretty fancy cars. So I was a little bit nervous. I had it in my head that when I took off the parking brake, the car might roll backwards into the car behind me. So I decided I'm gonna floor it as soon as I take off that parking brake, head up the hill. Unfortunately, this was not my car, and I wasn't terribly familiar with the gears. So when I floored it, I was actually in reverse and headed straight down the hill to the car in back of me. Fortunately, actually, the car also had very good brakes, so I didn't end up hitting it. But I was never as nervous uh, to be driving a car that wasn't mine. And that's the picture that we have here. These aren't the king's people. 
These are God's people that God has given the king responsibility for under him. Last week in her sermon, Chris May talked about bookends in Hebrew poetry and said her passage, Psalm 69, didn't have tidy bookends. The books fell out all over the table. Fortunately for me, I get a psalm with nice, tidy bookends. Verse 18 reflects verses 1 and 2. Verse 18 reads, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. God alone is the one who does wondrous things. He's the foundation, the basis, the source. If there's anything, that the, if there's anything good that the king does, it's because he's been enabled by God. God's vision for good rulers is that they rule based on God's own justice and righteousness. Some governments of the world, particularly in Europe in the Middle Ages, claimed to be doing just that, but all have clearly failed. More governments of the world, most I would say, if not all, claim to be following the second element we'll talk about in God's vision for good rulership, government that is for the flourishing of the people. Most claim it, and in most aspects of their rulership, most governments fail at this also. Sprinkled throughout Psalm 72, we see that the very existence of rulers is so that people, God's people, flourish. In verse 3, the prayer is that under the king, the mountains bear prosperity for the people. Prosperity here is actually shalom, which you probably know has connotations of peace, health, well-being, and all-around wholeness. Prosperity is a good translation here, uh, since, in, since verse 16 is a mirror to this one. And you actually see those mirrors or bookends sprinkled throughout the psalm. Uh, in verse 16, we see, um, it says, it prays that under the good king, may there be an abundance of grain waving on the mountaintops. Mountains, if you don't know, are usually pretty difficult places to grow food. So if the mountains and hills are bearing crops, it must really be that the land is doing very well. Lots of food available for everyone. This is a Garden of Eden image, a land truly flowing with milk and honey, the place that God has promised for his people from the beginning, a restoration of the way that things are meant to be on earth. If crops are growing well, that if crops are growing well, it's actually it's a reversal of the curse recorded in Genesis 3, in which man has to grow food by the sweat of his brow. That's the prayer, that this king would be so good for the people that the curse of sin is reversed. Psalm 72 goes on to spell out who particularly needs to receive true justice and righteous judgments. In verses 4 and 12, the focus is on those who are usually the first to suffer under unjust rule, the poor, the powerless. Clinton McCann points out that in verses 12 and 13, the king envisioned here imitates the actions of God who delivered his people from powerless slavery in Europe, or in Egypt, not in Europe. In Exodus 2, the Israelites call out to God for deliverance. In Exodus 15, Moses' song praises God for saving the Israelites from the Egyptian army and says that God has redeemed his people. In our passage, in verses 12 and 13, the king delivers the needy when he calls, saves the lives of the needy, and redeems the poor from oppression and violence. So God's vision is that a good ruler imitates God in ruling for the flourishing of the people. Again, most governments on earth claim to, be, claim to be ruling for the benefit of the people. But we know that throughout history, there's almost always some group that's marginalized, enslaved, persecuted, or killed. 
And it's not just in kingdoms or when dictators rule that this happens. Here in the United States, we have many, many examples of people being oppressed. Even today, or maybe I could say even more so today, both sides of the political spectrum point at the other with an accusation of oppression or even outright murder. And it wasn't different for, for King Solomon. In 1 Kings 10, Solomon starts acting in clear opposition to the direct commandments of, for the king in Deuteronomy 17. Most famously, it describes how Solomon used his power to sleep with literally hundreds of women, some as his wives, others as concubines. Following in his footsteps, his son, King Rehoboam, began to blatantly oppress the people, the opposite of flourishing, and the kingdom of Israel was broken in two. Throughout the rest of First and Second Kings, this pattern continues, walking away from God's justice and righteousness and the suffering of the people. God's vision for good rulership is government that's based on God's justice and righteousness and that is for the flourishing of the people. Without radical dedication to the first, even governments that claim to be for the people quickly become only for the rulers themselves. Lastly, in, we see in Psalm 72 that God's vision for good rulership is a kingdom that extends across the earth. Now, out of the three, this is the one that it's easiest for governments and rulers to get on board with. Uh, though they might not say it explicitly, verses 8 through 11 would be a dream come true for most rulers. I'm going to read uh, verse 8. May the king have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And it goes on from there. But the key to this as part of God's good vision for rulers, comes in verse 12. It's the trans a transitional word, key, in Hebrew. And it's translated for us as for. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. The king in God's vision should rule the earth because he is actually good for the people. Now we are naturally rankled by verses 8 through 11. The idea of one ruling king, of one king ruling, let alone conquering the whole world, is pretty vile to us. We are all about freedom. The freedom of individuals first and foremost, and the, free, the freedom of individual nations after that. But to be frank, our nations don't cut it. We ourselves don't cut it. In our hearts, we'd love to be in charge, or at least most of the time, to not have others tell us what to do. But we have no idea what the consequences of our actions are, especially over the long term, and our understanding of the impact of our decisions is always limited, even in a group. When we were trying to swim in, lake, in Cayuga Lake and the teenage lifeguard told us to get out of the water, if I had it my way, I would have just been right back in there swimming. I didn't realize the limit of my knowledge, though, until I heard sirens and an ambulance pulled up on the beach. See, it turns out that one of the summer camp kids had been injured in the water and needed to be rushed to the hospital. The lifeguards had been trained in the event of an emergency to get everyone out of the water so there weren't any compounding issues or other accidents so that the EMTs could concentrate just on the one person who uh, was injured. It was actually good rulership for the flourishing of all of the people, even if we had to wait to swim a little bit. But I, in my independent mind, 
just wanted to be in the water. That shows the limit of my knowledge. Coming back to verse 12, we read, For he delights, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Verses 12 through 14 are the reason why it would be good to have this king, the one who fits God's vision of good rulership, to have that king rule the world. God's vision of a king is actually a good one, one who knows what's going on, who has the big picture, who knows the ramifications of his laws and decisions and makes those decisions with true justice and righteousness, with the justice and righteousness of God. We actually need a king, a good king. I can't do it. You can't do it. There's no one on earth who can do it. Let's take, if you will, uh, take one step back with me and we're going to look at the big picture. I'm actually talking all of history. God created the world to be good, to thrive under his good governance with humans as his image bearers and vice regents. We rebelled against him, throwing the universe into chaos, creating inequalities, pushing people into poverty, war, and famine. So we create kings, governments, structures, all to try and solve this problem. But since we ourselves are the problem, these things fail. This psalm is a recognition of that reality. We are broken, so our governments, whether they be the best version of democracy or anything else we can imagine, also fail. The psalm is a prayer for God's guidance on the leaders of his people. But it also looks forward to Jesus and to his kingdom, which he has already begun and which will come fully to earth, to bringing his actual, real, good government that will last longer than the sun and the moon. It's good news. This is the he will aspect of the psalm, the prophecy. Jesus fulfills God's vision of a good king. And his, and his version of ruling was a total surprise to the people who knew him during his life on earth. May it continue to be a surprise for us. Jesus' kingship is completely based on God's justice and righteousness. In John 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This summer, we're in a sermon series called The Psalms of Jesus. This is part of that series. The Gospels are full of Jesus quoting the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. Jesus put into practice God's command to the kings of Israel to study God's law that we read in Deuteronomy 2017. He studied God's law, and Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures actually formed his thoughts and action, his actions. And Jesus always acts for the flourishing of the people. We saw this in our second reading today, Matthew 11. John the Baptist was surprised that as the prophesied king, Jesus was not fighting, but was healing, bringing people back to life and preaching good news to the poor. Jesus gives food and drink to his people, his own body and blood, which we get to share in today. And through him, the curse of sin is reversed, not through the sweat of our, our brow, but by the blood from his. Jesus is the only one for whom the four in Psalm 72, verse 12, is actually true. And for that reason, he should be king of the world. He is the king that the world doesn't know at once. His kingdom comes in a very different way than the Pax Romana attempting to bring peace through violence. Don't get me wrong, though. He will come. He will, he will actually remove all evil from the earth. He is coming back in bodily form to rule. 
But he started his kingdom by sacrificing himself for the sake of we who were his enemies. In Jesus, the promise of Abraham is being fulfilled. All nations are being blessed. So if you come away with nothing else today, I hope you come away with this. We need a good king. Jesus is that king. Is he your king? So what do we do here in Boston? This will be very brief, I promise. First, we can pray this psalm for our leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that we endorse everything that we do, but it is good to pray for them. Try this exercise this week. Take Psalm 72 and pray through it for a city, state, or national leader. Maybe one that you don't even like. Name them by name and just pray through the psalm. Now, there are some parts that are resolved just for Jesus, particularly the eternal reign over the earth part. Um, But we should certainly pray for our leaders to have God's justice and righteousness. And for the people, particularly as the psalm puts it, the poor and needy, for the people to flourish through them. Next, we can use this psalm as a prayer to ask for Jesus to come quickly and fully reveal his kingdom. That's what we truly, desperately need. Let's pray for it. And lastly, we can pray this psalm for ourselves as Jesus' disciples and consider how we can use the influence we have for the flourishing of the people around us. We need a good king. Jesus is our good king. In the words of the psalm, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. Jesus, this world needs you. Every nation, every ethnicity, every family, every person needs you. You're the smartest person who's ever lived. You are God, and you know how the world works, how physics work, how societies work. It is good that you are the king. Please come quickly, and until you do, please send your Holy Spirit to help our leaders and ourselves to govern with the Father's justice and righteousness so that the people, your people, flourish. Amen.